Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens, sitting in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening to the broadcast this evening. It is an honor to have you listening to the program tonight, but we don't want you just to stop with listening to the program. We want you to interact with us on the program It could be a question that you heard your grandparents talking about years ago. It could be a question that just came to your mind today as you were working about what the Bible says or doesn't say, maybe about the meaning of life or why bad things happen to good people. We would love to hear your question and answer it in a safe environment. Answer it from the Bible. Before we jump back into our topic from last week, which if you were listening last week, you would remember that we were talking about Scientology and the nuances of that cult, that religion, and we were getting ready to compare their teachings to Scripture again because Scripture is our basis of truth. But before we get to that, we have several questions that have come in since last week's episode Pastor Murphy, the first question, good night. Can you shed some light on reactive abuse from a Christian perspective, and how should I deal with it? Well, when you talk about reactive uh, abuse, you're really talking about a person who is going through some kind of abuse by another individual, and they are provoked to react in a uh, very unusual way. Uh, It's out of character with the way the person would normally act. this could result in a person, for example, screaming back, um, even uh, could involve physical violence. It can also have to do hitting back, etc., etc. The point is that you're provoked to the point where you respond in a way that you normally would not respond. In most cases, when that happens, it's uh, actually the abuser that um, tries to provoke that kind of reaction and then to create guilt in you so that uh, they score points with you and that becomes an excuse for their continuing their behavior. So it's really something that's intentional by the person who's doing the abuse. Uh, in terms of how to deal with it and how to respond to it, um, I, I would um, ask the person, it depends on the kind of relationship we're talking about. For example, 
Is it a husband and wife relationship? Uh, that's a different situation, requires a different response. Is it a parent-child relationship, again, where the parent is abusing the child and provoking the child, the child overreacts, and that becomes uh, a basis for further abuse? Uh, is it an uh, employer-employee uh, situation where the employer is, is being abused by the employer, et cetera, et cetera? Is it a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship as well? Is it just a friendship? So it all depends on um, what kind of relationship we're talking about because... Certainly, when it comes to if it's a, uh, a marital relationship, I mean, it's not a grounds for divorce because the only two biblical grounds for divorce, that is, if you were infidelity and you're forsaken. So there are other ways you have to respond to that. It might be a matter of uh, if it reached to the point where it cannot be corrected uh, and it continues, it might, might require temporary um, separation where some kind of counseling is done to try to uh, bring the persons back together. But I would suggest a few things. Um, I would suggest if it is not, um, you know, a mortal one, I would suggest there should be some kind of personal confrontation with the individual. In other words, draw it to the attention that you're aware of what they're doing and what they're trying to do to provoke you. Um, I would also suggest that you might get a third party who can perhaps be a, a counselor to try to be a bridge between the two individuals to try to resolve the issue. If it is a boyfriend relationship or a friendship, uh, you might want to think of terminating that because it's it's just not leading to anything that's going to be productive in terms of relationship. Um, in, in other cases, you might need to have a temporary separation uh, there. Uh, so there, there are four things that are involved, but the key thing here is that um, as a Christian, you've got to be slow to anger, uh, the Bible talks about. You've got to have this spirit of, of self-control. But all of us are aware that as human beings, we can be provoked to the point where we respond in ways that we would not normally do that. So you need some kind of intervention to try to help with this situation. If it doesn't improve, if it's something that is not permanent like a marriage, certainly I would advise you to terminate the relationship and uh, give the person a reason why you're terminating the relationship. If it's a husband and wife thing, you might need to get your past involved or some counselor to try to help in that situation. And if it continues, it might require a period of separation. Paul talks about this in Corinthians chapter 7, that there is allowed a period of separation. But then he says, if you, know, not, if you, not, if you don't want to um, break up your marriage, you've got to come back together eventually. So that would be a way of, de- way of dealing with it. But it... Um, it happens, uh, especially narcissistic. We talked about narcissism some time ago. That's exactly what a narcissist does. He abuses you to the point where um, you respond the wrong way, then he draws that to your attention, and that becomes the basis for him to continue his abuse. So it's a vicious cycle that has to be stopped at some point in time, and that would be my recommendation at, at this point in time. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, the next question is a WhatsApp from Antigua. Can the verses in Ezekiel 18 be explained on what changed from God saying repent and change our ways and having a clean heart and being just and righteous towards each other to believing in Jesus Christ to be saved? Well, in in a sense, God has always had the same standard for humanity, that man fall in line with the character of God as expressed in his word, especially the moral law. So nothing has really changed in terms of what God has always required. Remember that the law is divided into two sections. 
Uh, one first section has to do with our love towards God, and the second section has to do with our love towards our fellow, fellow man. And remember that it's in that order f- for a distinct purpose. You cannot love your fellow man the way you should until, first of all, you're rightly related to God. So that's why it establishes your relationship with God, and then out of that flows your relationship with other people. Um, but man uh, has never been uh, able to fulfill the moral requirements and the righteous requirements of God, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and that's because man has a fallen nature, and uh, the sin problem has to be dealt with. And the difference here now is that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, you become saved, you become adopted into God's family, you've got the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell within you. The Bible says the Holy Spirit baptized you into the body of Christ, you share in his death and burial and resurrection. And the same power that the resurrection power that uh, raised Christ from the dead, if you read Ephesians chapter 1, is that same power that now begins to work in your life. So by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, your past sins are forgiven. Uh, you also, in your present problem with your habitual sinning, you're given power to overcome the habit of, of your sinful nature. You find that in Romans chapter 6. So it's not the, the putting your faith and trust in Christ not only deals with your past sin, it deals with your present uh, dominating sins in your life to give you power over that. And then finally, it would rescue eventually from the very presence of sin. So there is a, a, a distinct difference between the two. One is God setting demands for you. And you don't have the power to fulfill those demands because you're not in Christ. The law told you what to do, but it never gave you power to do what you need to do. Remember, the law was there as a schoolmaster and a mirror to show you exactly your weakness so that you would be brought to Christ. That's the ultimate purpose of God laying down those rules and those regulations, is to bring man to the end of himself where he realizes he's completely inadequate and insufficient in himself to meet the demands of God's righteousness. And that's why God has provided uh, uh, in Christ a way of redemption and salvation that takes care of our past sins, our present sin, dealing with the giving victory over sin, and eventually taking us away from the very presence of sin. So there is a clear difference between the two when you put your faith and trust in Christ. This listener says, also isn't worshiping anyone or anything other than God, our creator, idolatry? Clearly, um, you're only to worship God and God only. Uh, as a matter of fact, even in the temptations of our Lord in Matthew chapter 4, uh, he reminded the, the devil of that. He said, fall down and worship me and I'll give you all the kings of the world. And he said that you, know, you should worship the Lord, your God only, and serve him only. So any other form of worship uh, that is devoted to any other being other than God is idolatry. That's why uh, it is wrong to worship objects like um, angels. It's, it's wrong to worship men no matter how great those men may be. It's wrong to worship a woman. It's wrong to worship Mary, for example. There's no need for anybody to pray to Mary or to worship to Mary. And, of course, it's wrong to worship the saints or to venerate objects. All of that is clearly against uh, biblical teaching. Um, so being then God clearly is idolatry. Thank you very much to the listeners who have sent in questions thus far. Do you have a question that has come to your mind that you would like answered from a biblical perspective? You can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available, waiting your call. one 462 7420 If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you want to send in your question via WhatsApp or text message, you can send it to one 268 782 
This next question comes from Antigua. It's a little lengthy, so I'll read through it and then give you a chance to answer it. I would like to know how Jehovah God and Christ are the same being when in these, these scriptures he clearly outlines the difference between him and his father. For example, John fourteen twenty eight, but really the whole of this chapter outlines that Jesus is doing the will of the Father and not his. So I'd like to for this to be explained, because Jesus never said that he is the Father, but he that he is in union with the Father and the Father in union with him, which simply means that he and his Father work together as one. Just as, for example, a household, the husband must be in union with the wife and the wife must be in union with the husband in order for them to work together. Thank you so much for explaining this. Well, I think that, um, quite frankly, I think this probably sounds like a person who is maybe a Jehovah Witness. Uh, who thinks that we say that Jesus is the same as God the Father. And that's a great myth. Um, for example, in, in first John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was uh, was God, etc. Um, that verse is not saying, that verse is saying, quite frankly, that in the beginning was the Word, that is J- Jesus, and the Word was with God, that's the Father, and the Word was God, and that's a different word. One is with th- th- the definite article the- theos, and the other one is a anarthus um, non, which doesn't have the article but emphasizes the nature. And what it's basically saying is that Jesus is of the same nature of, of the Father. He's not the same as the Father, but he shares the same nature, the same essence of the Father. So whatever God the Father is in terms of his uh, essential essence, uh, his godhood, Christ shares in that same godhood. Uh, for example, also you find that in Philippians chapter 2, it says that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be held onto. That's the concept. He's equal with God in terms of his nature and his character and his attributes. But he's not saying that Jesus is the same as the Father. This kind of confusion has come about because... Um, Remember, again, uh, if I'm correct in my assessment that this is probably a JW asking this question, Russell had no theological background that started um, the Jehovah's Witness belief. And uh, and that is where a lot of these uh, uh, cults that we face today with, every single one of their founders were completely ignorant biblically of the Greek and the Hebrew language. And they have created this complete mess that we have today. And now to, to try to unravel it, to explain uh, why they came to these false conclusions um, creates even a greater problem because it seems as though you're trying to uh, some way attack these individuals when they had their limited beliefs, etc., etc. But uh, so to make it very, very clear, uh, Jesus has never, has never said that he's the Father. And nowhere does the Bible ever say that Jesus Christ is the Father. But what we have discovered in the Bible is this. And this is where we the, the, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is something that unless you understand and grasp what it is, you'll always end up in confusion dealing with both the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, uh, we had a program that dealt with this where we trace you from the Old Testament where God said, let us make man in our own image. Let us make man in our own image. Man was only made in the image of God. He was not, he was not talking to himself and the angels because man was never made in the image of angels. Uh, and we trace through the Old Testament uh, how this plurality but yet, even though it's speaking in the plural, the nung is always singular. So there is a plural nung, like family, 
uh, used with a single verb. So we had the idea that there's a plurality within the Godhead. We don't, we're not too sure exactly what that really means in its full ramifications in the Old Testament. It's only when we trace it through the Old Testament and then we come into the New Testament, we discover there's the Father, there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we discover as well is that the Father is called God in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 1 Corinthians 15, 27. The Son is called God in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. And the Holy Spirit is called God in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 4. So the only conclusion we can come to is that they all have the same God nature, the same essence, but they're not the same. Uh, in other words, they're not the same. They're three different entities within the substance of what constitutes God. And the other thing is this. If you look at all the attributes of God, the communicable attributes and the non-communicable attributes, attributes you'll find that uh, Christ is all-powerful. He's all, always present. You find He's omniscient. You find that He's holy. You find that the Holy Spirit as well is the same way. And you find that the same works that the Father did, uh, for example, God the Father, we're told, uh, created. The Son also created. And we also told the Spirit created. All three within the Godhead cooperated in this whole plan of redemption, this whole plan of creation. Now, this is not something that we, we, we uh, draw out of a bag from nowhere. This is when you go through the Bible. And, and by the way, can we totally explain how this operates? We can't. It's a great mystery. As I have said before, it's this kind of a mystery that lets me know that we are on the right track in terms of this God that is so infinite that we can't comprehend. This, so it doesn't bother me that I can't totally explain how you can have uh, three persons within one nature. I can't explain that. But it is clearly taught in the Scripture. And we've got to let the Bible reveal to us what God is like rather than we use our puny little brains that is finite in trying to comprehend God and put Him in the pack that we can understand him in his totality because we simply can't do that. So um, to answer your question, um, Jesus never claimed to be the Father and he's not the Father. Uh, The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. By the way, in church history, there's something called monarchianism and something called uh, Sabellianism. These are people that believe that the Father manifests himself in three different ways. One time as a father, but the same one person. That is a heretical teaching that the church rejected uh, in the 4th and the 5th century. So, um, you just go through the Bible, and if you study the, 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 the Trinity, and if you haven't uh, listened to the program, I recommend that uh, Nathan gives it to you. Go to study it, etc., and then you can come back to me and ask me some other questions. And even speak to me and talk to me. I'll be prepared to sit down with you anytime and go through this biblical teaching of the Trinity to explain that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit of God. I can show you that in the Bible very, very clearly. Yes, just over a year ago, we did an episode, uh, episode 116 and 117 on the topic of the Trinity throughout Scripture. And if you're wondering how to find those, you can go to the Internet and type in www.radiolighthouse.org. That's our website for the radio station. Scroll down until you see the large picture of the microphone, and right in the middle of the screen, you'll see a circle that says podcast. Click on that link, and you will see listed That's Truth podcast and a link under that for an archive. And you can go to all 173 previous episodes of That's Truth. But if you're looking for the Trinity, you're looking for episode 116 and 117. Um, Nathan, one other comment. Um, The 
writer, uh, the person asked a question, seemed to think that it's oneness in purpose and oneness in design, etc., etc. But he's talking about oneness in essence. I and my father are one in, 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 in substance, in essence. You remember he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Right. I'm of the same nature of the father. I'm, I have div- I'm, just that the father has his divine, and, uh, divine nature, I have that divine nature. That's what he's saying. But he's not saying that I am my father identical, that the father am I, am I am the father. That's not what he's saying. We are one in the sense that we share the same nature, we share the same character and the same attributes. A follow-up question from the listener in Matthew three sixteen to seventeen, and then I'll ask the question. Matthew three sixteen to seventeen says, "And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were upon were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning up, lighting upon him." Verse 17, and low a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Was Jesus Christ talking to himself in these verses? Of course not. That's why the confusion is they think that Jesus is the father. But clearly there is an example of the Trinity, that the son is on earth in his human form to redeem mankind. The father has sent the son. The Holy Spirit comes to baptize the son. And that's what you have. The, the, the three persons of the Trinity is there, the Father. And by the way, he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So it, it's very, very clear the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. You've got the three divine persons uh, within the Godhead actually cooperating in this ministry of redemption. And in the process of our Lord's um, baptism, you have here the Holy Spirit coming to, uh, upon him, the Father speaking from heaven, and the Son about to take on his ministry and his work uh, of uh, redemption. So um, he's not speaking to himself, he's speaking to the Father. Uh, and that's the point we're making, that they're not the same in terms of identity. They are same in essence, in nature, but not in in, in terms of, of identity, in terms of person, persons, uh, three different persons within the Godhead. That's the, that's the where I think... Um, there is so much confusion in this matter. But let me, let me say another thing. You cannot have eternal love that the Bible talks about without at least having two persons from eternity. Oh, in other words, love love is between at least two persons. Right. So to have that, again, all of this shows you that, quite frankly, that the the concept of the Trinity goes back from eternity. That's why I talk about eternal love. You can only have love between you, you, you know, two persons, basically, at least within two persons. And there was eternal love uh, from the beginning. So um, I hope that helps to clarify it. Uh, but we're not saying that the church has never said, and uh, this is a false belief to say that we're saying that Jesus is God the Father. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons within the same essence, the same substance. So whatever is essentially, like man, like, um, is like Nathan and myself. Uh, I can say that we are one in the sense that we share humanity. But we don't share identity because he's Nathan and I'm, I'm, I'm David. But we share the same humanity, the same nature of our humanity. Uh, I don't know if that analogy helps, but I hope it does in terms of the Godhead. A listener from the Southern Caribbean along this topic wants to know, what about John 10.30 where it says, I and my Father are one? Well, that's again, I'm trying to explain to you, one in what? One in essence, one in nature, not one in identity. Uh, uh, so I hope that that helps with the situation. 
Thank you. And by the way, it wouldn't make any sense, for example, that Jesus talking to himself and he's talking to the Father. I mean, and then when he's praying in, in John chapter 14 and 16 to the Father, so he's praying to himself. Uh, I mean, that is so comical and so ridiculous. It's, 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 uh, it's amazing that people would come to that low understanding and comprehension of just biblical truth. Our next question comes from St. Kitts Nevis. Pastor, can you please explain 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 and 17? Because it seems like post-tribulation to me, and I'll read these verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Look, this uh, clearly has nothing to do with the uh, post-tribulation. A key to that is, look at verse 13, uh, Nathan, and read verse 13 before you read verse 14 and 15. Okay, verse 13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. Verses you hear a lot of the funeral. Yeah, these are verses that were designed to give comfort to the Thessalonian believers who had lost loved ones. How in the world would this be a verse of comfort for those of you talking about the tribulation period? So first of all, it's a verse especially designed to give hope and comfort to those who have just been bereaved. And that hope is that your, young, your, old, your, your loved one has not perished, and that when the Lord returns, he's going to bring... And, and by the way, go back to um, the same passage and look at verse number 14. Okay, verse number 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with okay, him. Okay, read the next verse. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now, the word prevent there is an unfortunate word. We didn't we, we precede. That should be precede. That, okay. that word means precede then, because we prevent me to hold them. Okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Unto, unto the, uh, unto, uh, uh, and have, uh, go ahead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Yeah, so it's actually the hope that the Lord is going to uh, come with the saints. And when he come with, um, of course, coming with the saints means he's coming with the spirit of his saints. The, the body has to be resurrected. That's why Paul is saying that the dead in Christ shall rise. So the spirit that is coming back with Christ, the, the redeemed who are with Christ, comes back with him. And their spirits re- reunite with the body that's resurrected. Uh, and those who are alive then will be changed, basically. By the way, this, this passage also links with, um, look at Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 51 and 50 to 53. First Corinthians. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one to fifty-three. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, 
For the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Verse 53. For this corruptible must be put into incorruption, on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. I think that is very, very plain, very self-explanatory. I notice he calls it a what? A mystery. Yeah. Because this is not something that was ever revealed in the Old Testament. The rapture is not in the Old Testament. The revelation of Christ coming back to judge planet Earth is all is called the day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament writings, holy prophetic writings. But in in terms of the the rapture or Lord coming back for the church to snatch away the church, that's not revealed in the Old. We do have uh, every uh, New Testament truth. There is a Old Testament analogy, and we would say the analogy of the rapture is when Enoch was translated uh, just before the flood. And so there is an incident of that illustrating what is going to come, but actually being taught about uh, this mystery. Remember, mystery is not something that is so esoteric you can't comprehend it because it's so profound you, only a few people can. It simply means it is something, a truth that was kept back by God, that, but is now revealed. And that truth is so simple, but nobody understood it until God revealed it. So it's not designed only for the intellectual and intelligentsia. It's designed for the simplest believer. And every simple believer understands that uh, when our Lord returns, He comes back for His saints. He's going to rapture His saints and take them away. I think the most uh, uneducated believer in the church who has put their faith and trust understands that. But again, if, if the, the Lord had not revealed that, nobody would have understood this is going to happen. But this is a truth that belongs to the New Testament church. So this has nothing to do with um, the tribulation. What you will find about the tribulation is to look at Matthew chapter 24, 27 to 31. This is the one that has to do with the second coming. Now, notice the difference there. Matthew 24, verse 27 to 31. Those verses say... For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For whosoever the car- for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Uh, how far? Uh, read down to verse um, 31. Okay. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory. Verse 31 and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. See, that's a different, different, different uh, manifestation altogether. And uh, this is one coming like lightning and coming with all of his glory and with the angels. And then he calls elect, of course, elect are those Jews that are scattered during the tribulation period. And notice after the tribulation of those days, he appears. So they're dealing with two different things. One is the rapture, which has to do with the church. The other one is the revelation, which has to do with that uh, comes after the tribulation period. But the rapture occurs before. Um, we don't have time to go through this. We did a program on it because the Bible said God has not appointed this church to wrath. So we will not suffer the wrath uh, 
of the, the that the world is going to suffer, we are going to be removed, snatched away before God pours out His wrath. And um, I would recommend that you su- suggest a person look at that program, The Rapture. Yeah, we talked about The Rapture. We actually did a whole series on Bible prophecy. Our pastor did uh, 18 parts. and But the specific part on Rapture was episode 95. So if you go to the radiolighthouse.org website and scroll down to the second picture that you see, you'll see a circle that says podcast. Click on that. And under there, that you will see a link for That's Truth podcast in the archive and look for episode 95, and that is the rapture explained. And then episode 96 is further details of the rapture and further explanation. And if you are interested in Bible prophecy, there's a whole 18-part series on that topic. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.03. I am honored that you have taken the time, made the time out of your Tuesday evening in order to join us here on That's Truth. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 11.60 a.m., 92.3 f.m., and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And you can also join us on for this program on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can watch behind the scenes, listen to the program, and comment right there on your device, and your questions will also get passed along to Pastor Murphy. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268 268- Seven eight two one four five four. Pastor, we have a question that has just come in from Antigua. In what order of in what order of year was the New Testament books written? Also, was Martin Luther opposed to James being a part of the New Testament? Um, I can't give you the specific order. We, by the way, somebody's requested that we do a program on how we got the sixty-six books into the Bible. We're looking at trying to do that very shortly. Uh, I would say that Martin Luther did have questions about the book of James, and the reason why Martin Luther had problems about it, Luther was coming out of Catholicism that had put so much emphasis on salvation by works. And then when he got enlightened by Romans, the just shall live by faith, and he became converted, he came across the book of James, as you would know, and uh, James talks about uh, a man being justified by works. And that seemed to contradict what Paul was teaching, that a man is justified by faith. But again, if you use it, look at the illustration in the book of James, that a man is justified by, by works. Uh, it's talking about the time when Abraham offered his son Isaac on the altar. James said, but you see how Abraham was justified by works. But remember that that occurred in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis. But uh, Abraham was justified in, in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted on him to righteousness. So James is dealing with two different things. Justification before God is by faith. Justification before man is by works. So James is emphasizing the need for good works in the life of the believer as a proof of the fact that that person has been justified by faith in God. Luther didn't comprehend that. He thought that James was contradicting uh, Romans. Uh, and, and that happens with, with people sometimes, that they think the Bible contradicts. But once you understand what James is doing as opposed to what Romans is doing, you see that they're not contradicting, they're complementary. 
So Luther did have questions about, about um, James, and that was the reason for it. He thought that James was contradicting uh, Paul in Romans. But uh, as you would know, if you know the scriptures, James is just being very practical and lets us know that faith without works is dead. And that is a biblical truth. James said, if a man have faith, he doesn't have works like a body without a spirit. Uh, it's, it's dead. And the Bible says in Romans chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, that we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We were saved, and God had preordained and preplanned good works that would follow the person who became converted. So good works don't save you. But good works is a byproduct of your salvation and a manifestation that you have authentic, genuine faith in God. So a believer should practice good works and should live a life that manifests good works. But that's not those works that save him. It's because he's saved, he does good works. Uh, you know, those who've lo- looked at Luther and looked at that biblical teaching... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Pastor, we have a call from Antigua. Thank you for calling, Brother Williams. And Go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Good sir. evening. And happy anniversary. Yes, thank you. It's 46 years ago today that the Lord allowed the station to go on the air. Wow. Okay, then. Bless. Coming to the golden <laughs> anniversary. Yes, yeah. Okay. What can we do for you, brother? Yeah, Pastor Murphy, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. How's your wife? Congratulations. Yeah, she's fine. She's better than you? <laughs> <laughs> the la- ladies normally are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Uh, let, me, uh, let me tell you uh, a simple question. Sure. If you have, a, if you are unsaved, if you are Christian husband, uh-huh. and you have an unsaved wife, uh-huh. or a Christian wife have an unsaved husband, uh-huh. does she carry the same weight like the Christian woman wife or the? Does she carry Christian the what? That she has to do everything that you say, or she has to do, she has to do everything that you say as a Christian or as an unbeliever. Well, it, it, it depends. I mean, uh, you want to win your wife. If she's not a Christian, you want to win her. So if you're a believer, uh, I think every wife has certain duties to fulfill in relation to her husband. I mean, she should take care of the home, should do the cooking, whatever it is. However, I would say to you that if she's working eight hours out of the work and you're working eight hours, when you come home, she come home. Remember, she had eight hours out, she had eight hours too. So I would hope that the husband is sensible enough to try to help her. If she's doing the cooking, maybe she, he can do the washing the wares. Uh, he can maybe help her with the, the clothing, etc. But to have her eight hours working, like he's working eight hours, and then she comes home, she got to do everything. He just sit down and watch television and, or something. I think that a lot of men make some serious mistakes and not understand they need to share the burden if the wife is working eight hours outside like they're working eight hours. But generally speaking, a woman's a wife's job, uh, whether she be Christian or not, uh, she has certain obligations and certain roles that the Bible expects her to play in that regard. Um, but again, I mean, if you if you are married, you can't you can't demand your wife. If you're a Christian and your wife is not going to church, for example, you really can't demand she goes to church. How are you going to do that? You can drag her into the thing, put her in handcuffs and drag her out? No, you try to encourage her, you try to witness to her. And and, and in most cases, by the way, if you want to make an impact on the person who is not saved, it's not by quoting Bible verses and, and putting on Christian songs and Christian music. It is by living the lifestyle before the individual, even without words, just living, being kind and courteous and thoughtful and loving and caring. And even when she's not all she's supposed to be, yet 
uh, respecting her and, and showing her kindness, etc., etc. Um, so there's no, I mean, I don't know what to tell you in terms of, of, of that, but uh, you can't make a, an adult person who has their own will, um, you know, they're not a child. You can't put certain demands on them. Um, you, you do it more not by coercion, but you do it by love and tender affection, etc., etc. And I think even an unsaved woman, if she's married to a, a man who is saved, uh, I think she is responsive. If he is he's thoughtful and kind and, 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 and uh, treats her with dignity, etc. A woman is a responder, by the way. Um, men need to understand that. Uh, we can't make demands, but they respond to how we treat them. And if we treat them with thoughtfulness and kindness, they normally return that in, in, in terms of deed. So I don't know if that helps you. I don't know what you're thinking. So, so, what, what, so what about the unsaved husband if I save wife now? Because she have to say every, do everything he say he, he, he commanded to do? Well, everything that is not contrary to Scripture. I mean, but again, uh, it's a very foolish man who puts all kinds of unreasonable demands on a wife just because she's his wife. I mean, you don't build relationships out of just barking orders, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you've got to lead, but you don't lead by being a, a commander, et cetera, et cetera, a dictator. Uh, loving servant leadership is what the Bible talks about, that word servant leadership. And you remember what Christ said? Uh, he said, you know, the, in, in this world, you've got people who can give orders and command, but I say to you, you know, you who want to be the greatest, be the servant. And I think if a husband serves a wife and she is conscious that he is there to, 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 to help her, to serve her, to help her to grow and to develop, etc., etc., I don't think whether she's a Christian or non-Christian is going to have problems uh, responding to him the way they should be. But uh, to make unreasonable demands because he's a Christian, I think he has to be very, very careful because his job is to get her converted and get her saved. And he can turn her off by making unreasonable demands uh, on her. So... Pastor, what about the case where a unsaved husband tells his saved wife she can't go to church? What should she do? Because that's against Scripture. Yeah, I, I, in a case like that, I would probably um, there would be times when I would not go, but the other times when I would say to him, uh, if I had to listen, I respect you as my husband, I love you as my husband, but my commitment is to my God, and I, I hope you don't see this as an attack on your authority but there are certain obligations that I have I must obey God rather than you and maybe even given the scripture to that end uh, I, I would probably do that but there will be times when um, I probably would stay home just to be with him to let him know that it's not that I hate him or despise him but I do feel that I'm obligated as well to be in God's house so I would have to bring that to his attention and hopefully he would understand and I think if he, if he does it in a decent way that shows respect for him he probably would not like it immediately but I think he will understand it's not a matter that she disrespects his authority but she has a higher authority and that authority is God and uh, so she she can make and she's an adult she can make those kind of decisions did that answer your question brother yes thank you very much you're welcome sir have a blessed night you too God bless thank you very much for your call we appreciate you interacting on a regular basis with us here on That's Truth do you have a question that you would like answered we are excited about the possibility of you reaching out to us and asking your question you can call and be put live on the air the phone line is open again 
268-462-7420. If you would rather, you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. Comment your question right there on your device in the comment section, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy on the air. For the listener who asked about uh, the books of the Bible and the New Testament, stay tuned for a hopefully in the near future episode of That's Truth, and we will be sharing some more information specifically about that and about an overview of the books of the Bible. We are out of questions for the time being, and until we get your question, we will jump back into our topic that we were again discussing last week, which was that of Scientology. Pastor, you went through pretty much 90 minutes of Scientology last week. Can you consolidate that down for just a couple of minutes, give us a review? Well, I would just basically say that this guy, um, uh, Hubbard, uh, had a very creative imagination. As you know, as I pointed out to you, he was a science fiction writer. Um, I think he was very ambitious. Uh, I also know that he was very mercenary. I was going to bring a quote, and I left the quote at home, unfortunately, where he actually said, if you want to make money, you've got to make a religion. And he took, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I give you the exact quote, basically, that the way to make money was to create a religion. He was, he was a scientific writer, uh, and he wasn't doing very successful. And then he came up with this Dianetics, which he transferred into Scientology. But he said, you know, if you really want to get into the money, you've got to turn this thing to religion. And that, he made no, no, no qualms about that. As a matter of fact, later in the program, if we get to another time, we'll give a, what a, um, a, a, a court judge said about him and his character, and you'll see quite frankly, this is a person that, um, very, very, uh, not a man of integrity, uh, a man, quite frankly, that is driven by greed and avarice, uh, and a man that also cannot balk anybody opposing him and his views, quite frankly. But, uh, so he started this system, and, um, I, you know, it's a mixture of science fiction, it's a mixture of Hinduism, it's a mixture of psychology. Uh, it's a mixture of Gnosticism. It is putting all these things in a blender, as it were, a mental blender, and coming up with this 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 uh, thing called Scientology. He called it Dianetics, and uh, of course, he created his own lingo, his own language, um, uh, a lot of jargon. And I suppose that people love fancy words, so he came up with his own words. Um, uh, talking about auditing, uh, talking about thetans. Uh, and um, talking about two different types of minds, um, you know. So he, all of this kind of um, the analytical mind and the reactive mind, and he talked about having engrams and how you get these engrams and how this system of auditing using an e-meter helps you to find out where you had traumas in your past life and this present life, and using scientific um, Scientology technology and counseling, you can know where these traumatic things occur in your life and go back in your past life and you can erase these type of things and the more you erase these things you begin to recognize that really in truth and fact you are a supreme being you are a small god trapped in a body and the whole thing is to be liberated so you become enlightened so it's a whole matter of salvation through enlightenment providing some kind of human wisdom to release man and when that happens you become enlightened to who you really are your real god and not a, a, a physical being then you can manipulate the material world you can do astral travel you can do um telekinetics 
and etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, it's very appealing to people and then of course when you do all of that you're more happier you're more fulfilled you have what is called self-actualization and you come to the point where you are more than just an ordinary man you are superman and you're even more than a superman you are small god and you will mesh eventually with this supreme being and, um, and uh, basically that is what Scientology is all it goes back to the same new age stuff Christian science stuff um, the school of unity stuff they all teach basically the same thing the same lie that started in Genesis chapter 1 you shall be as gods and you should have knowledge and have wisdom the devil hasn't changed his message he just changed his tactics and his methodology but it's substantially the same thing that man could reach godhood and every major uh, new age movement every major cult uh, basically in essence uh, teaches the same thing same thing with the Mormons as God wa- as God as man is God once was and as God is man will become the whole teaching is that one day will be gods we will never be gods we will have uh, be like Christ but we will never be gods uh, we will always be human beings uh, however uh, transform human beings but not gods but that's the myth that the devil the lie that got man to sin and it's still the same lie he holds out like a, 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 a carrot that man goes after and falls into error. Here's that quote you referenced. Uh, it's reported that at a meeting of the Eastern Science Fiction Association in November 1948, Hubbard reportedly said, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start, start a religion. That's it, that's it. I, I, <laughs> but that gives you an idea that this man's motive really is, and, and don't forget that in Scientology, the way of you getting healed is very expensive. Right. Not like our gospel that's free. I mean, it's thousands of dollars you're spending. That's why people like um, John Travolta and uh, the Cruise. Uh, uh, Tom, Cruise. Tom Cruise and uh, Lou Rawl, all of these guys are part of this whole system as well. They've got the money, they can afford it, but the ordinary man is quite beyond his pocket. I... I think the next logical step in discussing Scientology is to consider some of their key beliefs and compare them to Scripture. Again, the basis for this program is Scripture. Let's start with the topic of God. Yeah, well, the Scientology, when it comes to God, uh, they refer to God under different names. Sometimes they refer to Him as nature. Sometimes they call Him infinity. Uh, and they call Him the eighth dynamic because the eighth dynamic is, is, is infinity. And they also call Him the all Titan, which is life, basically. Uh, the church seems to have deliberately, purposefully uh, left vague and undefined uh, what God is, so that uh, no particular concept of God is, is, is specific, uh, because really God is not relevant uh, to to this whole theory, quite frankly. This is not for you to go to heaven, basically. is for you to be able to understand that you are God yourself. So the, uh, uh, the other thing is that um, they leave the individual uh, to decide what their concept of God is after they've even presented their own idea. Uh, God is different to different people, basically. Um but when you listen to their writings, uh, it seems two things I would say. First of all, you would get the impression that they're polytheistic, that is, that they believe in many gods. Let me give you a quote from uh, Humbert. Uh, he said, um, There are gods above all other gods, and gods beyond the gods of the universes. Now, whatever that means, that is pure um, 
twaddle, twaddle, quite frankly. It, it, it's just uh, complete nonsense to make that kind of a statement. There are gods above other gods and gods beyond gods of the universes, you know. But again, remember he's a fictional writer. And I suppose his fallen creative imagination leads him down this kind of a, a dark track where he can spout out uh, words without any real meaning and substance. So I think from that statement that they are gods above other gods, you have polytheism. There are many, many gods. The other thing is that um, when you read the writings as well, he seemed to be what you might call pan-entheistic. Uh, uh, um, what I mean by that is all finite Entities are within God, but they're not identical with God. They share in some aspect of, of the, the ultimate God, but they themselves are not uh, identified as this absolute God itself. So a man is part of God, quite frankly, but he's not the ultimate God. That's why it's like trying to eventually merge your personality into this infinite uh, force so that you lose your identity, basically. It's like Hinduism. It's almost like Hinduism that teaches that God is everything, everything is in God, and they make no distinction between... If God is in everything, everything is in God, there's no distinction between good and evil, because they're all God, quite frankly. So there is... Uh, it seems to be that they are polytheists, that they believe in many gods, but it also believes that uh, panentheism, where man is part of God, but man is not identical with God himself. I don't know if that confuses the audience, but it does confuse me as well. But it gives you an idea that when you go outside of Scripture, you always end up in language that uh, seem to be only for a distinct type of people who might be philosophical or who seem to be, um, maybe you might say, maybe have university degrees, quite frankly. But in essence, it boils down to just nonsense and fiction and uh, quite... Um, Bunk, bunkum, quite frankly. What about creation? Oh, but oh, but, but uh, I would like to contrast that with the biblical teaching. If you yeah. look at um, Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11, Nathan, because we have to, what they teach, let's see how that compares with what the Bible teaches. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10 and 11, those verses say, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 43.11 says, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now, get that for just a moment. I, I, before me there was no gods. And after me to be no God's form. In other words, I am, there's only one God, quite frankly. That's what he's saying. This is in contrast to this um, nonsense that we read in the, the, the Scientology, saying that there are many gods and many gods beyond our universes. Uh, here, God speaks uh, from the book of Isaiah and asserts that there's only one God, none before, none after. Uh, he is unique among. Uh, those that claim to be God. Then look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Isaiah 44, verse 6 reads as follows, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. First and last, beside me there is no, no, no God. And the other thing is that, um, look at Isaiah 45, verse 18. Isaiah 45, verse 18 says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, 
He hath established it. He created it, not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Again, it's very, very clear. There's only one true living God. Uh, this idea that there are many gods or that man is part of godhood is just a creative myth that comes from a depraved mind. What about the topic of creation? They believe in evolution or? Well, very strange belief, but again, um, you'll see the, the science fiction coming into play uh, by that. They do not believe, like the Bible teaches, that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing, by a divine fiat, with God said, let there be, and there was. Uh, they uh, don't believe that creation has its own separate existence. Um, instead, the universe is a subjective mental emanation from the Titans. Now, remember the Titans, <laughs> uh, what man used to be before man got bogged down in this physical world. He was a god before, and what happened, quite frankly, is that the Titans, uh, these immortal spirits which indwell our bodies, um, they became so bored. Uh, now, uh, Humber doesn't tell you what led to this boredom, but they became so bored with this invisible world that they decided to spin off this material world from their own imagination. So they got together, quite frankly, by consensus, this spin-off. So they, they actually created the world inside the material world. But what happened with them is they got playing with this material world. Um, they became so enamored with it and so hypnotized by it that before they knew it, they forgot who they were. So they found themselves trapped in these bodies now. And the whole thing of Scientology is to remind man who he is because man's problem today is not his sin, it's his ignorance. He doesn't know that who he is. He has to be enlightened to remember who he was so that he can deliver himself from this physical body. So in actual fact, creation is the... Um, the emanation that comes from the immortal spirit within man that spinned off creation. It was not a creation of God, quite frankly. So man today is trapped uh, in this matter. And the reason why, of course, they're trying to deliver man from being trapped in this body because once you realize that you're a titan and that you were uh, a real immortal spirit, now you'll be able to manipulate this material world. So you can do... Airports, and then you know, airport is you can put an uh, item in a glass and it comes through the glass by dematerializing. Uh, you can do telepathy, you can do telekinesis, you can do psychic things, and you can also do astral travel when you begin to realize who you are. It's part of the occult, and don't forget that Humbert, from 16 years old, was involved in black magic and in the occult, so he's also married that within the, the Scientology. But that's the whole whole thing, Nathan. Its creation is actually the uh, the mental projection of the immortal spirits of, of humankind that created the material world and then got trapped in it, forgot who they were, and now uh, Scientology is to bring that to the attention that you really were a theta and you're not a physical person and you get delivered from your physical body, quite frankly. And how does that compare to Scripture? Well, Scripture makes it quite clear that uh, creation took place by divine fiat. God spoke out of nothing and created this world. Man did not create the world. God created the world. Uh, that's the biblical doctrine. So it's quite contrary 
to the biblical doctrine of creation, that there's an eternal creator that created uh, the material world. And this material world is not part of God either, see. Uh, and that needs to be borne in mind as well when you come to this concept of uh, creation. Now that we've discussed creation, and what about man? So, so um, Nathan, let me just say something else here. Yeah. Um, um, in essence, that comes down to the idea that this material world is an illusion. It's the oh, right. same thing like Christian science, yeah. and the same thing like you know. It's the same idea that this is. Uh, so, uh, I hope you see the connection between all of these movements. They all take from each other, but basically give the same essence and substance, just use different terminology and create their own jargon, quite frankly. But all these different movements you've got, the essence is that man is a god, he doesn't know he's a god, he needs to be enlightened, etc., etc. Um, so I just hope you see the connection between that. You asked me another question about what? Yeah, about man, what they, what they believe. I'm curious what they say about me. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, man is an immortal spirit who has uh, basically divine, uh, but the problem is he has become trapped in a body that uh, he himself created this material world, as I pointed out to you, out of his, spin it off from his imagination, from his, 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 his uh, by mental processes, and now he became trapped in it, quite frankly. So, uh, and the other thing uh, that about man is that um, man has gone through several reincarnations. So we have been reincarnated for trillions of years. And each lifespan that we lived in, we had traumas. And these are called engrams. And these engrams are in our, what they call our. Uh, um, reactive mind. There are two minds. There's the analytical mind, which is the logical mind, and there's the reactive mind that stores all these engrams. Engrams basically are bad experiences we had that are in our memories, and that's why we are so miserable. So they tell you now we can we can use this machine called the e machine and we could do auditing and we could ask you certain questions. See when you had a trauma in in in, in the womb or you had a trauma in the next life, and we can deal with you so that you can erase that. So that by erasing all of these traumas, you become what is called clear C L E A R. Uh, that means that you have a better understanding of who you are. And then you're going to become what is called an operating titan. That is when you really know we should the point where you understand your godhood and learn how to manipulate the universe, quite frankly. So it's just the engrams that these traumas that we had in the past life that is created the problems that we have today, all the emotional and uh, physical problems we've got. And uh, Scientology will help you solve this problem by going back and asking you questions and find out when you, when, what planet you used to live on. Uh, I, I mean, it is pure fiction. How anybody can believe this kind of nonsense just baffles me. Uh, but again, it shows you how man has become spiritually blind, blinded. And when you go away from the truth, you fall for the most um, bizarre. bizarre error that is possible and I think this is what's happened to these people what does the Bible say about mankind well the Bible teaches quite frankly that man is a creation of God and that God made man perfect and God tested man in the garden of Eden and man allowed uh, Satan 
to uh, make him the same offer that's being offered to all of these cultic movements that, you know, you don't recognize who you are, but you can really be a divine God like God, and God is holding it back from you, knowledge, so you can be wise like God, and you would have power like God, you become like God. That's what Eve brought into, and of course she fell, and the Bible says as a result of that, uh, man became a sinner, a man became spiritually dead, that is spiritually separated from God, and man became alienated from God, and that has led to all the human problems that we have. Uh, and that's the biblical doctrine. Man is a special creation made in the image of God, but through his willful disobedience and rebellion against God, he has found himself now in a fallen state. He's a sinner, he's guilty before God, and he needs pardon and forgiveness, and he needs restoration between himself and the God of the universe. Pastor, we have a caller. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Uh, yeah, I just want to know that um, the same garden was ever, um, Adam and Eve were, were growing out, out of the garden. They left the Fleming stone, yes, so the garden, the garden of life. So now the um, other question now, the garden of um, uh, Jesus Christ, where they come to collect him, then Jesus... Um, I think that is very creative imagination. I don't think that has anything to do, there's no biblical warrant for that whatsoever. The incident in the book of Genesis where as a result of man sitting and going against uh, God and the, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, uh, God did not want man to have committed sin and then partake of the tree and live forever in a sinful state. So God put uh, an angel with a flaming sword preventing man from give, give, gaining access to the tree of life. Uh, so God does not want man to live in sin forever. So that's why the, the so when we come now to the Garden of Gethsemane, two different things altogether. It has nothing at all to do with the Garden in Genesis uh, chapter three. Uh, this has to do with the fact that our Lord is praying. Um, he knows he's going to the cross, and uh, he's carrying the burden of the fact that uh, here is a holy, perfect. Son of God, who is going to bear the sins of humanity. And I, I don't think that we understand what it is to be a holy being and to take on the entire sin of the world. Remember, he's taken on the sin, not only of Adam's sin, but every sin from Adam until eternity. Uh, he's taken on the sin of the whole world, quite frankly. And that weight upon him, he's had great sweats of, of things. But then when they come to arrest him now, Peter... Um, uh, said, you know, um, you know, Lord, uh, you're not going to the cross, basically. And the Lord said, get the behind me, Satan. And uh, uh, Peter um, now wants to defend him when he sees that he's going to be taken, etc. And Peter acts very impulsively, and he cuts off Malchus's ear. And our Lord heals Malchus's ear and tells Peter, put up the sword. He that lived by the sword will die by the sword. So there's no, there's no connection between the two, the sword 
in Genesis has to do with uh, God protecting the tree of life. The sword in, in uh, Gethsemane has to do with Peter trying to protect Christ and from going to the cross, uh, etc. So two distinct different things. There's no connection between them. But I can see people uh, who want to be poetic and creative trying to see something which is not there. And a lot of times these are people who believe not in the grammatical, literal interpretation of the Bible, who try to come up with some allegorical truth, uh, make it mean something that it doesn't literally mean. But uh, so I, I think we're stretching scripture to try to put a connection between the Gethsemane and uh, Gethsemane and the, and the Garden of Eden, two different things altogether, two different connections altogether, two different purposes altogether, two different motives altogether. So there's no connection there whatsoever. Thank you very much for your question, Codrington. Did that? Can I, can I continue? Yeah, go, go ahead. The garden and the garden, there is a, what do you mean, there is no connection, there is a, because the, the key is going to guard, um, the angel of the name is going to guard them for life. And then Peter come in and say he want to guard um, Jesus Christ for hand of the soldiers and then get him. So I just want to know that, how, is that a fulfillment? Because, you know, we love to talk about fulfillment, you know, and if we use the word garden, kind of parables to you to understand so I believe that's how it's just a parable that's how you can just understand that's how it come to fulfill from the garden of Adam and Eve and then when he come to die on the cross now he should come to because it totally representing dying because of dying they left the garden and now Jesus Christ come back again now because of um, dying again in the same garden that's not the same thing is that's a fulfillment as I did Codrington, uh, there's no connection between the two. Um, you're just trying to be creative in your mind and trying to allegorize that. But it's a very literal thing that occurred in Genesis chapter 3 and what occurs also in the book of Matthew and, and the book of uh, Luke, etc., etc., the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ is going to, um, he's there praying because he's about to go to the cross. He's praying to the Father and he's, 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 he's helped there. Uh, angels minister to him to prepare him for the the final crucifixion, but there's no there's no connection between the two. One is completely different. Peter is trying to protect uh, Christ from being carried to the cross. In the case of Gethsemane, in the case of uh, Eden, the the sword is to prevent man from having access to life and live as a sinner and, and have uh, eternal life, quite frankly. That's why it's, it's prevented. So there's no real... If you want to use a creative imagination to maybe see a connection there, I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to get debating that. But that's a literal... Those are two literal passages, and they cannot be allegorized to mean anything that is in any way um, connected to these two things. Other than say that in the Garden of Eden... Uh, you know, there was a tree of life, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a son of life, whatever. I mean, you can use your creative imagination. But quite frankly, these are literal things that happen. And the important thing is that Christ in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, was preparing for the cross, and the burden of the cross was so heavy upon him that his blood swept through his, his, uh, his pores. And there are people who believe that the enemy tried to destroy him before he went to the cross there. Uh, because of the blood coming through his pores. But that was a time of uh, prayer and preparation for the cross. He needed that time, and that's where he completely surrendered. 
he said, you know, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Here you have a conflict between his humanity and his deity uh, that is, is struggling because he's both man and God at the same time, but he surrenders completely to God's will. And remember, he was born to die. I come, is written in the bottom of the book, uh, to do thy will, O Lord. You find that in the book of Hebrews. So, according to tonight, I, I'm just saying that there's no real connection between the two. If you want to use your creative imagination to come up with something that is uh, allegorical, you may do so. But the important thing is that he was preparing to go to the cross, and um, he was burdened with the weight of humankind sin that would fall upon him, and because he was ultimately and completely holy and impeccable before God. And uh, when man's sin was put upon him, uh, his father turned his back on him and he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because again, a holy God could not look the fact that his son was now bearing the sins of the whole world. That is a moment that no one can fully grasp the full meaning of all that was done there at that moment and what it really meant in eternity. Uh, we will get the full understanding of what that really meant. Thank you very much for the call, Codrington. Appreciate you listening from Antigua. Pastor, we have a listener sure. uh, that wants you to explain Mark 1 1. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I don't know what is there to explain there. The beginning of the. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Comma, the Son of God. Yeah, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't see any any, any difference. In, in, in one section, you've got his humanity, Jesus Christ. The word Jesus is his human name, which means Savior. Christ is the word anointed, uh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Messiah. And Jesus Christ the Messiah is the Son of God. So you've got, on one hand, you've got his human nature emphasized in the term Jesus Christ, and the Son of God has a divine nature. So you've got his dual nature there, what is called the hypostatic union between uh, his godhood and his humanity. He's both God and man at the same time. Thank you for the question. If you want further explanation, feel free to send additional information to Marianne, who is call screening, and she will pass it along. We are talking about the topic of Scientology and comparing their beliefs, specifically their belief of God, their belief of creation, their belief of man. Yeah. So, so in Nathan, in essence, then, man's problem is these engrams. Okay. He doesn't need to... Man's problem is not sin that needs to be forgiven and pardoned and cleansed uh, is these engrams that need to be erased. And he doesn't really need a savior. What he needs is a counselor who will help him to be able to use an e-meter to tell him exactly where these engrams are and how to erase them. That's completely different than the Bible. The Bible's teaching about man fallen nature, and because man is a sinner, man needs forgiveness, man needs pardon, and man needs a relationship. Man needs a savior. That's what the Bible teaches. So it's a complete difference between the anthropology of the Scientologists and the anthropology of Scripture, that man is a sinner, he's lost, he needs forgiveness, he needs pardon. The Scientologists said, no, that's not his problem. He has these unfortunate engrams from all of these rebirths, 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 all these problems and he just need these things erased through counseling so if man doesn't need a savior per se then I assume their view of Christ is all out of whack well it is it's shocking what they say about Christ they diminish number one his deity for example I'm going to quote what uh, Humbert said he said neither Lord Buddha 
nor Jesus Christ were OTs. OTs are operating pethans. These are the ones who have gotten rid of all these engrams and now able to manipulate uh, the material world. The highest Scientology level is the what you call the operating pethans. According, to, he said, according to evidence, neither Buddha nor Jesus Christ ever attained this level of operating um, titan. Remember that the Scientologists can help you come to this point of, of being an operating titan where you no longer have all these engrams. So if you understand what that statement is saying, that we can create a human being that has more power than Jesus and more wisdom than Jesus than and Buddha himself. He goes on to say this, they were a shade above clear now, a, a person who is a clear uh, titan is a person who has had most of the engrams removed, but he hasn't come to the level of the operating, which is the top. And he's putting Jesus even below that, that he has not even come to the first stage in uh, what we in Scientology can do. We can create a person who is wiser than Christ and has more power than Christ. Now, imagine making a statement like that. Uh, that gives you, this is a heretical doctrine. This is something that no person who claims to be a believer should ever be involved in. This is demonic stuff, occult stuff, and this is completely alien to Scripture and contrary to Scripture. The other thing that they do, uh, Nathan, is that they diminish his historicity, that he was not really a historical person. Let me read what they said. You will find the cross as a symbol of all, a symbol all over the universe, and the Christ legend, uh, he goes on, is, is, is an implant in a pre-clear a million years ago. Now remember, a pre-clear person is a person who has all of these uh, traumatic engrams that are in his memory. And he is saying that Christ is a legend that the pre-clear person's mind uh, has been infected by. So Christ is not really a historical person. It's a legend that the, uh, the person who is, uh, has not been gone through their process of healing uh, is currently at. So he's not a real historical person. That in itself destroys his historicity and that destroys his deity. So in actual fact, you have a church claiming to be a church that denies both the deity of Christ and denies the historicity of Christ and calls Christ a legend. Uh, it is just uh, incredible that there be people who have been uh, familiar with the Bible and know the Bible that would fall to this kind of um, heresy uh, so clearly. So that is their teaching about Christ. He's neither historical nor is he deity. He's just a legend implant in a pre-clear mind, a person who is a, a titan, who has got trapped in the body, and uh, he's not enlightened as yet. That's where he is just a, a legend in that person's mind. What truths do we find in Scripture that tell us about Christ? Well, look at First Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen. Second Peter one sixteen reads as follows: For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Yeah. Peter is saying, look, we, I want you to know that the, the, contrary to what uh, Scientology is saying, you know, Christ is not a legend, he's not a myth. We haven't followed mythology. And he said that we were eyewitnesses of his glory. And remember that Peter was one of the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
when they went up there and Christ did it through his, his, his humanity and it looked as though he was his son. Peter saying, listen, I was there. I know that this is not a legend. I know this is not a mythology that we're talking about. Uh, we, we saw his majesty. We saw his glory. Uh, that's what Peter is saying. So that is contrary to what uh, Hubbard is teaching, that this one is just a legend, a uh, legendary idea in the mind of a pre person. Um, etc. The other thing is that uh, if you look at um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 Hebrews 1 13 says but to which of the angels said he at any time sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool again notice that uh, he's speaking of Christ in that particular passage and notice that he's not an angel by the way and later on in that chapter he said thy throne O God is forever uh, he's deity, quite frankly. So he's not hes not just a man. He's not just an angel. He's actually more than a man, more than an angel. And we only know of three different levels. We know of humanity. We know of fallen angels, good angels, and behind that is God. So that's where, again, if he's not an angel, he's not a man, uh, he's deity. And then if you look at uh, John chapter 20, verse 19 and 20, John twenty nineteen and 20 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you, verse 20. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad, when they saw the Lord. Now look, we're at read first twenty-four to twenty-eight now. Following that, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said unto them, "Except I shall see." in his hand the print of the nail and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side I will not believe verse 26 and after eight days again the disciples were within and Thomas with them then came Jesus the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said peace be unto you then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. How far do you want me to go? That's it. Uh, I mean, here is a man, uh, Thomas' the disciple, coming to the realization that this one, Jesus Christ, is Lord and God. Uh, I mean, you cannot be more explicit than that in this particular passage. He comes to recognize the deity of Christ. So the biblical presentation of Christ is far contrary to, he's not only a historical person, he's also uh, uh, deity, God in human flesh. That is so contrary to the teaching and the doctrine of the Scientologists. Pastor, uh, we're running low on time, but we have a text message that's coming from Antigua. What is Mary's position in the Bible? Mary? Yeah. Mary's position is very simple. Mary was the one chosen by God to bear uh, Jesus Christ into this world. She was a virgin. And um, that's her role. Her role was to become the mother through which the human Jesus would be born. Remember that Jesus, uh, Mary is the mother of Jesus' humanity, not of Jesus' deity. Uh, and that's what people need to be bear. Mary is not the mother of God. That is a myth. 
she's the mother of our Lord's humanity, okay? Uh, but that's what her role was, to, to uh, be the one who would bring the Messiah into the world, uh, give him uh, his human body. That's her role. As a matter of fact, it's, it's fascinating that after the Gospels, Mary is mentioned once in the Bible after that. That's in Acts chapter 1, which is in the upper room with all the others. After Acts uh, chapter 1, Mary disappears from the entire Bible. She's not mentioned again in the Bible from Acts right to the book of Revelation. You know who is mentioned? Who becomes the focus? Christ and Christ alone. Mary fades. As John said, he must increase and I must decrease. Mm. And if Mary was here today, she said the same thing, I must decrease and he must increase. So that was her purpose and that was her function. And that's her only purpose and her only function. We've got about five and a half minutes left in this episode, and I know we've still got a number of teachings of the Scientology. Uh, you want to discuss sin next? Yes, it was sin quickly. Um, in, in Scientology, because uh, man is not really fallen, uh, man is a deity who has become trapped in a body after spinning off the material world and becoming enamored with it. I mean, it's so ridiculous to, to believe what they teach. But quite frankly, listen to what um, he said in Scientology. Uh, it's called a world religion. They said, uh, it is despicable and utterly beneath contempt to tell a man he must be repent, that he must repent and that he's evil. I mean, Jesus Christ came on the scene saying, repent or you're going to perish. Flee the wrath to come. But here, as the Scientologist said, it's despicable and utterly beneath contempt to tell a man he needs to repent and that man is evil. Uh, that tells you enough because there's no sense of guilt. There's no sense that man has an evil, na evil nature. There's no sense that man is doomed for eternal damnation. There's no call for repentance and there's no need for a savior or Christ either because sin doesn't exist. The problem with man is not sin, it's these traumatic engrams in his psyche, quite frankly, that need to be erased through using Scientology and the E-meter and counseling uh, and then uh, and these past life experiences, etc. So you go through a process of reincarnation and you go a process of going through the techniques used by Scientology to help you clear these engrams that are in your psyche or what you might call your reactive mind and to clear that part of you. So sin doesn't exist in their, uh, in their thinking. Sin doesn't exist. We know in the Bible it clearly exists and it separates us from Christ and that's our need for salvation. What do they say about salvation or death? Well, salvation for them is achieved uh, through reincarnation. In okay. other words, you can see why that is it. Being reborn and being reborn and reborn. And if you go to Scientology and you get this enlightenment, you reduce the amount of reincarnation you've got to get because you become more enlightened and more enlightened and more enlightened. And then if you, you know, so basically, um, if I might quote uh, what they said, they said, personal salvation is one lifetime in freedom from the cycle of birth and death. Say that again? Again, personal salvation is in one lifetime is freedom from the cycle of birth and death. In other words, in your one single lifetime, your salvation is when you go to a birth, and you die, you come back again. That's one salvation. And of course, you go through this process again and again and again. They also go on to say this, religious practices of all faith is a universal way to wisdom and understanding and salvation. So here's the second thing. What they're basically saying is that the way that you can get salvation is through practicing the wisdom that we give you. 
so it's being enlightened you, you follow that yep, so it's yep. being so two things you go through pro- re- reincarnation and you go through this process of enlightenment and we will help you using our um, auditing of our counseling and using the e-meter which we, we have help, to pay for of course expenses <laughs> very 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 expensive quite frankly uh, again in contrast to that quite frankly the bible tells us quite frankly that we have salvation only in Christ and Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but me. Peter said, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul said, There is one meter between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So, and this, this salvation that we have is through faith and faith alone in the finished work of Christ. And not only that, it's a free gift. So we offer a free salvation. Scientology offers you a salvation that costs you thousands upon thousands of dollars. And unfortunately, the poor can't pay for it, so only the rich going to get uh, get there. The poor can't afford it. That's the contrast between this nonsensical um, movement and the song biblical teaching when it comes to this doctrine of salvation. What about death? Do they believe in an afterlife, hell, and punishment? Well, uh, again, death for them is a quite um, ordinary experience because we all go through these reincarnations so you're going to die you're going to be born and remember we've been doing this for a trillion of years the other thing death is seen as a blessing because uh, the more enlightened you become remember ultimately uh, the whole purpose is to get you released from the body so the body is your your prison and by their teaching and by their doctrine and by your enlightenment and by your reincarnation, eventually you'll be freed from this body. So they don't see death as something, quite frankly, to be feared. They see it as beneficial to you because you must go through this process in order to be liberated, your spirit liberated, and get out of this prison house of the body. Uh, that is their teaching, quite frankly. Do they believe in a hell and punishment? Of course not. I'm going to quote here what Ron Hubbard said about hell. He said, hell is a total myth. An invention just to make people very unhappy, and it's a vicious lie. Now that is, <laughs> I mean, for a person to make those kind of statements and still call itself a church, uh, this is heresy on steroids, to be very honest with you, and it just shows you uh, how misleading and how delusional uh, this man is and his teaching. Uh, in contrast to that, Nathan, would you look at Matthew twenty-five forty-one? Yes, Matthew, actually I don't think we're going to have time to read it. Okay. Uh, but in closing, what what final words of advice would you have in the last 40 seconds in relation uh, to Scientology? Look, I wish I had enough time to read what a, uh, a judge said about this man. But quite frankly, he is a pathological liar. He's greedy, he's avaricious. I mean, this is a judge, given a judgment on this man, and that he could not stand anybody opposing him, very vindictive in spirit. This is a man, no doubt, misled, uh, following the occult, and no doubt, uh, demonic cult, and he has spawned this teaching that's misleading people. Stay away from it. It's contrary to Scripture. It doesn't have the support of the Bible. It's a heresy. Thank you for listening to this episode of That's Truth. Be sure you tune in next week and encourage others to tune in with you as we bring you another practical topic. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. 
Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.